0: In a decade that saw far more than its fair share of American masterpieces, Chinatown stands not just amongst them. It positively towers as one of cinema's greatest achievements. Released in 1974, it also marks the high point in several great careers. Director Roman Polanski, screenwriter Robert Town, producer Robert Evans, actor Jack Nicholson, director of photography John A. Alonso, production designer Richard Silbert and costume designer Anthea Silbert. Nominated for 11 Oscars, it wound up with just a single statuette, Best Original Screenplay. But in the years since, the DGA, the WGA and the AFI have each voted it high on the respective all-time lists. To which I add this, it turns mysterious, beautiful and horrifying, Chinatown is the only Hollywood film that truly ascends to the height of tragedy. However, whether attending public screenings, reading blogs or listening to podcasts about the film, you will notice that Chinatown is often referred to as a classic of the film noir genre. That is not true. To begin, film noir is not a genre, and furthermore, Chinatown is not even film noir. As Paul Schrader pointed out in his seminal 1972 essay, Notes on Film Noir, noir is a mood, a style, a tone. The mood is predicated on its look. Noir means black, so the images are dark. Until the 1940s, Hollywood screens had been dominated by brightly lit and classically composed images. But with the emergence of noir, it developed expressionist imagery. Chiara lighting and tilted camera angles created acute diagonals within the frame to present a world that was off-balance. Although its themes are extremely dark, Chinatown's visuals are anything but three-quarters of the picture takes place under the searing Californian sun, and whether the scene takes place during the day or night, the frame always maintains its composure. The reason why noir is so often mistaken for a genre is because it is so closely linked to the mystery thrillers from the 1940s and 50s. But the detective story dates as far back as ancient Greece, to Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, where the troubled king goes out into the wilderness to see what is the cause of the plagues and drought that have laid siege to his city. Later, from the Islamic Golden Age, when Scheherazade narrated One Thousand and One Nights, she told of a mystery in need of solving. Then, from 18th century China, there is the Gong An series, while across Europe and America, Voltaire, E.T.A. Hoffman and Edgar Allan Poe were all soon writing about the art of detection. Yet none of those examples can be classified as noir. But, just as you can have a detective story without noir, so too can you have noir without a detective story. Westerns such as The Oxbow Incident and Unforgiven, melodramas such as The Reckless Moment and Million Dollar Baby, and sci-fi's Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Blade Runner. However, from Sophocles to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, no detective expresses the hard-bitten, sarcastic and sceptical tone that emerged from the pulp writers of the 1920s and 30s. But be it Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler or Mickey Spillane, noir writers created a new tone dark and pessimistic and sometimes written in the first person the collective voices of sam spade philip marlowe and mike hammer are those of a cynic by contrast the tone style mood and voice of chinatown is tragic i'll tell you i'll tell you the truth Good. What's her name? Catherine. Catherine who? She's my daughter. From its opening credits, bathed in nostalgic sepia and a plaintive score replete with a lone trumpet, across a landscape parched by drought, and on to its gut punch ending, I would go so far as to say that a low Chinatown begins in the detective genre as our private eye doggedly winds his way through an increasingly corrupt city he uncovers a crime so appalling, it should be reclassified as horror. Not horror in the Hollywood movie sense, but horror in a moral sense. Inspiration for the film started as a series of anecdotes screenwriter Robert Towne heard from his father, Lou Schwartz, who'd been a real estate agent in 1940s Los Angeles. Intrigued by the numeracy of scandals and skullduggery, Town began to research the city's history and found a great source in Kerry McWilliams' book Southern California Country, An Island on the Land. Published in 1946, it contained a chapter, Water, 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 chronicling the land grab conceived and overseen by William Mulholland. Yes, as in Mulholland Drive. Mulholland was a Belfast-born engineer who, beginning in 1902, brought about the 233-mile aqueduct that now irrigates the San Fernando Valley. It took over 20 years for the extremely complex scam to unfold, so Town decided to structure it around a detective story that takes place over the course of one week. But by interlinking the property ruse with labyrinthine plots of rape and murder, Town's telling of it was so labyrinthine that the script sprawled over 180 pages so labyrinthine that when the then head of Paramount Pictures, Robert Evans, read it, he could make neither head nor tail of anything. Wisely, he passed it on to Roman Polanski, with whom he had last worked, in 1968, on Rosemary's Baby. What have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? Yet, for all town's exhaustive research, and the intricate layers and historical detail, political corruption, municipal malfeasance and shocking twists, his script ended in a traditional manner. The detective exposes the villain and saves the woman. But for Polanski, that simply did not ring true. Soon after Rosemary's baby had won Polanski, rave reviews and an Oscar nomination, his young wife, Sharon Tate, was butchered to death by the Manson family. She was eight and a half months pregnant. Understandably, Polanski's view was that, beautiful blondes are killed in Los Angeles. So, working closely together, Tan and Polanski junked about one-third of the script and greatly streamlined the plot. Detective Jake Gittes, played by Jack Nicholson, is hired by Evelyn Mulray, played by Faye Dunaway, to investigate whether her husband Hollis is having an affair. But when Gitties produces what he assumes is the incriminating evidence... Do you know me? Well, uh... I think I would have remembered, I... Have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. That's what I thought. You see, I'm Mrs. Evelyn Mulray. You know Mr. Mulray's wife? Not, uh, that Mulray. Yes, Mr. Giddy's that Mulray. And since you agree with me that we've never met before, You must also agree with me that I've never hired you to do anything, certainly not spy on my husband. I see you like publicity, Mr Giddies. Well, you're going to get it. Drama sometimes operates on the laws of physics. For every motion, there is a counter motion. The story begins in an arena of harmonious order, but an inciting incident throws that order into jeopardy. The protagonist sets off on a campaign to correct that threatening chaos. Finally, things are rebalanced and the drama eventuates upon a harmonious ending. But because Chinatown does not adhere to such principles, it does not arrive at such a conclusion. Instead, it operates by way of asymmetry. Things that you expect to be familiar are slightly off-kilter. What you expect to come in pairs is mismatched. For instance, Caught in the sudden torrent of water at the reservoir, Jake loses one of his shoes. Later at the orange grove, he loses one of the lenses in his sunglasses. As for Hollis's glasses, one of his lenses is shattered. The pair of pocket watches Jake leaves under Hollis's car, one of them is crushed. Later still, Jake breaks one of the taillights in Evelyn's car. Then there is the flaw in one of Evelyn's eyes. But it is not just Evelyn's eyes that we notice several characters Jake included end up with a black eye and nowhere is this asymmetrical pairing more evident pointed and poignant than between Evelyn and her daughter Catherine and that in turn suggests the pairings are not so much mismatched as they are ruined in Chinatown everything is ruined ruined by our propensity to corrupt those around us our community and above all our environment here is production designer Richard Silbert there is such a thing as structure visual structure. It has nothing to do with the cameraman, it has nothing to do with the director, and it has nothing to do with the actors. It has to do with this particular script. All the colors in the picture should look like, in the interiors especially, burnt grass, dead leaves, umbers. All the buildings in the picture should be white, they should be generic which means Spanish, and the whiteness is heat. You put sunlight on a white building and you get heat. And heat is part of the story. Chinatown communicates its meaning by interconnected motifs. For instance, water. Although the whole thing takes place in a drought, the most powerful man in the city is named Noah. Notice also the abundance of rivers and reservoirs. Jake follows Hollis to the shoreline where he watches the tide go out. You even have steam erupting from a broken down car. Then you have lakes and ponds, and it is in a pond that Jake finds the mystery's vital clue. That clue is a pair of glasses, and that gives us another motif, seeing. Jake is a private eye. So there are lots of glasses, sunglasses, reading glasses, binoculars and camera lenses. But since this is a mystery, what is seen is not always as it is. Hollis's glasses are mistaken for Noah's bifocals. Such mistakes come from impaired vision that punctuates many scenes. Windows shroud part of the picture. Glass doors are frosted or obscured. Side mirrors on cars minimise our view. Not to mention the numerous misleading photographs. Then you have the violence. In addition to the black eyes, Jake is attacked on multiple occasions. He even has his nose, one nostril, slit open by a flick knife all of which feeds back into the film's asymmetrical design. Only that last example is not about seeing. It is about castration. And that brings into play all the film's sexual references. Jake's specialty is matrimonial work, so there is bound to be a lot of sex. Infidelity, prostitution, sex jokes and horses. You mount a horse, ride a horse. Evelyn says she goes out bareback. But horses can be wild and dangerous. And sex in Chinatown is dangerous because it always leads to suffering and sometimes even death. So perhaps the horses symbolise death. Either way, you add them all together and you have water and eyes and horses and sex. And nothing is what it seems. And that brings me to this film. More than any other film, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo had an enormous influence on the way Polanski reconfigured Chinatown. One of the mainstays in Hitchcock's films was a phlegmatic, aloof female. While you can add enigmatic to those adjectives, you could never describe Judy Barton as a femme fatale. The femme fatale is a familiar staple of the noir mood, and she was created by male paranoia, so the noir male always had someone to blame for his ruin. But in Vertigo, It is the other way round while at first judy dupes scotty in the end it is scotty who destroys judy and more than that scotty is defeated not once but twice because each time he completely misunderstands what he is seeing and while that was not the case in town's original script by the time polanski had overseen the rewrite jake had suffered the same double defeat and that brings me back to the film's asymmetrical structure References are constantly made to Jake's past, a past where he once worked in Chinatown, where he had fallen in love with a woman who, despite his best efforts, he ended up hurting instead of protecting. As Chinatown's plot plays out, we see history gradually and then tragically repeating itself. Tragedy requires asymmetry. When a protagonist admits a past defeat, the plot usually sends them on a trajectory where the wrong is righted, order restored and redemption assured. When failure revisits, salvation is not secured, and what we see is further suffering. In Chinatown, Jake's failure is not only repeated from long ago, but also asymmetrically foreshadowed by a scene that takes place just over halfway through the film. When Jake and Evelyn visit the Mar Vista retirement home, Cross's henchmen quickly arrive in the scene, and Jake gets into a fight. It is Evelyn who comes to his rescue, pulling up in her cream-coloured Packard convertible. Jake jumps aboard, she races away and shots are fired. At Jake. They miss, shattering, one side of the windscreen. Something similar, but very different, happens at the end. I said I want the truth. She's my sister. She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth. my sister and my daughter. So, far from being a femme fatale, Evelyn is the victim. Even more tragically, she's the only character in the entire story who is completely devoted to protecting the innocent. It means that what happens to her at the end makes her one of the most tragic and abused women in the history of Hollywood cinema which only further removes any notion that Chinatown is noir. Neo-noir? That's another matter. But while Chinatown doesn't have a femme fatale, it does have un homme fatale, a species far more deadly than the female. What Noah Cross does to the land is an extension of the sexual crime he has already wrought upon his own daughter Evelyn, and will extend that pain to the child of that rape, Catherine. Cross is a sociopath, totally immune to the feelings of others. What is more, Cross does not see himself as a criminal. On the contrary, he holds himself up as a victim of circumstance. I don't blame myself. See, Mr. Gitz, most people never have to face the fact that at the right time and the right place, they're capable of anything. Cross commits his crimes, does not see them as crimes, and worse, no one in authority does either. He gets away with it because good men do, as little as possible. Such apathy makes us agents of Cross's crimes, and Cross's crimes ruin everything. Us, those around us, our community, and above all, our environment. That is neither cynicism nor pessimism. It is a result of our tragic behaviour. Forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown.